Welcome to week four of Counseling 506 and this first presentation on the subject of multitasking in Christian counseling. As you read through the textbooks, one of the key issues you may have found is the challenge we face as Christian counselors to integrate three important areas in our counseling work, psychology, theology, and spiritual formation. So how do we do this? How can we hold all of these important roles together as we do our best to be effective counselors with our clients? A key is to understand that our multiple roles in Christian counseling are all equally important. Here you see five roles that every Christian counselor must simultaneously engage in when they're doing the work of counseling. The first role is being a participant which has to do with the therapeutic relationship. Obviously, we want to carefully avoid over-involvement with our clients, but we cannot be so withdrawn so as to not be partners in the process of changing their lives. We need an authentic presence. At the same time, the effective Christian counselor is an observer through listening, through watching for nonverbal signals, and through maintaining professional objectivity. And Christian counselors are also engineers. We are continually assessing and adjusting our work to the client's needs. This is especially important for those who are brand new to counseling. For instance, when you first meet a client, you do an initial assessment. You begin to get to know them. But remember, that the initial assessment is just that. It's the beginning point. Throughout your work with the client, you are assessing and adjusting to that person's progress and to new understandings and revelations that you discover along the way. By the very fact that we call ourselves Christian counselors, then every counselor is also a minister. Our work is an extension of the church a ministry of the body of Christ and we are conduits of his grace. And then the last role is that all of us are disciples. For each of us our counseling work is an act of obedience and service to our God. The level of professionalism in Christian counseling is not less than a secular counselor but really more. The foundational motivation and method of our work is summed up by Paul in his writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6 verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not man. That is our approach in Christian counseling. To keep in mind that we have to remember that our first client is always God and that it is in the name of the Lord and for the sake of God's kingdom that we engage in this ministry of counseling at all. It is important for us to be pleasantly inflexible with clients. This means we are to be welcoming, to remain unflappable, but also to tenaciously cling to our core values, to not feel like we have to set aside things that are really important to us in order to connect with clients. It is important to be intentional 
to not simply go with the flow of whatever works at the moment, but to have an intentional purpose, an intentional vision for your counseling work and for that particular work you're doing with a particular client. We also need to be trustworthy, to be humble, and to be personally integrated. These are character qualities that a professional Christian counselor must consistently demonstrate. If you are not a person whom your clients will trust, they simply will not disclose much of their personal lives to you. Also, if you are a person who struggles with arrogance, then clients will feel that they are not really welcomed, that they are not really appreciated, and they won't be able to share from their hearts. On the right-hand column are detailed some ways of relating to people that are absolutely necessary in spiritually sensitive counseling. We need to always be aware of our motives, to ask ourselves, what's driving this? Am I doing what I'm doing and saying what I'm saying because it is in the best interest of my client? We're to be diligent in constantly refocusing ourselves on what is best for the client. It is also important to be responsive, not reactive. Keep in mind that every person you see in counseling is there because they feel they have no place else to go. In their own way, each one of your clients has tried to solve their problems themselves and it has not worked out. You will very often hear outrageous comments and you will see outrageous behavior. It is important to not be reactive, but to be responsive. If anything, we want to be proactive in helping people in their change process. It is important to not rely strictly on techniques in professional counseling. Techniques are important, but without some careful training in their use, it is hard to help people with their change. Because if techniques alone are the foundation of what you're doing with a client, we are lost. We need substance. Each one of us needs a personal faith and a personal theory of counseling, and so this gives our counseling substance on which we can rely on and trust our core values in God. Another area is our trustworthiness. One of the key ways that trust is demonstrated is when we remain honest under fire in the face of a client's anger and distress or when we're feeling challenged we remain honest with them. Finally a key piece of honesty is self-awareness. To have a sense of our own comfort level and our limits. Our ultimate goal in our professionalism is to demonstrate a Christ-like character. Now that we've talked about some key points in professionalism in spiritually sensitive counseling, let's review a short assessment map to help us in our work with our clients. Continually assessing clients as we work with them is part of our job. So each time we encounter a client, we should be asking the following questions of ourselves. First, does this client have an accurate sense of self-awareness? Do they seem to know where they are in their progress, 
or where and why they're not changing and where there are points of resistance. Does this client understand their own involvement in their behavior choices and their responsibility for the consequences they're experiencing? Secondly, does this client have an accurate awareness of need? Does this person seem to understand where their needs might be? Or are they grandiose? Do they seem to think they can completely take care of themselves? Or are they completely hopeless and depressed? Do they think they're beyond need? And finally, does this client have a healthy openness to healing relationships? Is this person willing to be helped? Do they believe they can be helped? Take just a few minutes to review these questions again. They will appear again and again in this course because it is a key piece of your work in multitasking in Christian counseling. Now we'll look at building your theoretical map in Christian counseling. It is important for the counselor to be quite self-aware of your beginning points, of your theoretical beliefs, and in the way in which you approach clients. Listed here are seven questions that you're encouraged to continually clarify in your own mind as you approach the task of counseling. The first is to understand your personal worldview behind your practice. What do you believe? What do you not believe? Why do you do counseling at all? The second is to understand your goals for counseling. Do you think of counseling primarily in terms of dealing with clinical symptoms? Or do you think in more global terms of transformational goals? Next, what is your theory of healing? How does healing of the whole person, the mind, the spirit, the body, take place? Do you believe God is an active part of that? How does talk therapy and medication play into your theory? What part does behavior change play? There is also the question of what is your understanding of pain and brokenness? What is your role as a counselor in alleviating suffering? And then this fifth question, how is counseling redemptive? Are you intentional about seeking the Lord's work for your clients through your counseling? Do you seek to use prayer both in and out of the counseling sessions? Does your theory include spiritual dialogue with your clients to the extent that is appropriate in helping to develop them? Next, what is your theory of personhood and personal responsibility? This subject comes up again and again in this course because it is so important. What is your attribution theory? Do you think in terms of people being responsible for their own behavior? That is considered an internal attribution. Or do you believe in people simply being responsive to the systems and the relationships and the people around them? That is called an external attribution. Or are you aware and open to both levels of responsibilities? Since in every case, both internal and external responsibilities are always at work. What are your thoughts and theories related to that question? And what is your understanding of sin and fallenness in this world? Now the way 
in which we put together our personal theoretical map has much to do with our temperament as people. When we think of background elements, we think of training and experience, and how in many ways our training and experience dictate what we emphasize. For instance, if you've been trained in clinical psychology, you are naturally going to use psychological theories and constructs and techniques as your beginning points. It does not mean that, as a Christian, that you don't consider your theological beliefs and spiritual formation principles, but your beginning point will likely be where your greatest training is. It is also true that your belief system underlies your choice of techniques and your view of a client. So you must ask yourself, what is my belief system? On what is it based? Additionally, within your belief system, how does your sense of right and wrong influence how you understand and set boundaries? Understanding boundaries helps you distinguish them between you and your client, helps you understand what healthy boundaries in an individual might look like, and also helps you guide clients in developing appropriate boundaries in their lives. There are several areas of counselor temperament that affect multitasking. We're going to look at three of them as guiding examples, with the first being your personal style. Everyone has a personal relational style, and it does affect how you go about relating to your clients. Some people are naturally supportive, some are more naturally confrontive. This doesn't mean if you're more supportive that you can't be confrontive when you need to, or if you're more confrontive, that you can't be supportive when it's required. Are you more naturally an encourager or a challenger? Are you a person that finds it very difficult to challenge others? Or do you find it difficult to be empathetic? We typically lean in one direction or the other, so you do need to be aware of what is more natural for you to do. Another important question in understanding your temperament is, do you lean more towards being a tasker or a processor? That is, do you lean more toward tasks such as getting the job done, completing goals, and seeing tangible results? Or are you more interested in the process of building relationships, of connecting with individuals, and of allowing the goals to occur as they need to? This important dimension will affect how you go about guiding clients and setting their goals. But the real key is to realize that your temperament is not the client's temperament. We must be able to discern some of these elements of the temperament in our clients and then learn to balance them with our own as we craft the therapeutic relationship. The third element has to do with your control needs. How controlling are you as a person? For those who have quite low control needs, it may be perfectly normal for you to allow a client to take more control in setting their own goals and in controlling the flow of the therapeutic relationship. We usually see this in Carl Rogers' person-centered counseling. For those who feel more comfortable having more control, you are going to want to know where things are going 
and you're going to want to have some significant part of the direction the sessions are going. This is typically what is done in behavioral types of counseling or in Albert Ellis's rationally emotive behavior therapy. We have another assessment process that we engage in when we counsel which is called the rate limiting factor. The idea of the rate limiting factor is a term that McMinn borrowed from the science of chemistry. This is a very simple principle stemming from the idea that in any chemical reaction what limits the rate of change for the entire process is the slowest change within the process. This principle can be true in the counseling process as well. To the degree that we are able to assess a client's needs and remain aware of our own processes will limit the rate of change that the client has in counseling. So these five levels of self-assessment can be vital. One, to know your client. Two, to know your goals. Three, to know your map. Four, to know yourself. And five, to know that you don't know. We must be constantly assessing where to go next in the counseling process in order to be the most effective with clients. And it is very helpful to repeat these areas of assessment every time you meet with your client to make sure you know where they are at when they come to see you. This helps us to ascertain the following. What sort of progress are they making? Where are they running into obstacles to change that seems to frustrate them? Where is this client with the beginning goals they set? Are these goals in harmony with the goals that you have for this client? Or do those need to be reassessed at this time? How is your theoretical map applying to this client? How are you feeling about this client as a person when you meet with them? Do you find yourself feeling tension or anger or something else? What sort of internal signals are you getting about your theoretical map as it applies to this counseling relationship? What are you understanding about yourself as a counselor in this particular interaction with the client? Are you staying aware of your own limits, fatigue levels, and ability to remain present with the individual? Are you aware of your limits and prejudices in this counseling situation? Are you asking the Holy Spirit to guide you and to help you beyond where your abilities stop? Well, this concludes our presentation on multitasking and multiple assessment. As always, I encourage you to take a few more minutes to review it again to familiarize yourself even more with these principles.